Of the four gospel accounts, Mark is the shortest, the most concise, and arguably the most complex or difficult gospel. Uh, Mark's name is not mentioned in the gospel. It's not attributed to him as the author, but if you look at your Bible, it'll say the gospel according to Mark, and that is a long story how we get to Mark and authorship, but be that as it may, we have two pieces of information. We have story internally and what's called external evidence. Let me just make a brief comment about external evidence. Uh, Things outside the Bible that confirm the Bible are nice to have. It's not that we need them. Uh, You've heard me say archaeology doesn't prove the Bible. The Bible proves archaeology. So when we have extra biblical information, it just reinforces what we know of Scripture, but it's not bad to have what we call extra biblical sources that confirm what the Bible is teaching. And so this argues for Markan authorship. I want to go through a list of observations, general observations, and we'll look at some more in detail. But this was helpful for me. Is I don't know about you, I'm learning a lot in my own study because I've never done this before. I've never taken a book of the Bible and said, what do we need to know as a you know, overview of this book. And it's been very helpful for me personally to dive into some of this from a synthetic way and not get too lost in some of the details, which I would normally do, to think synthetically. So let me give you, and these are gleaned from my own study as well as from a number of scholars. And just it's two commercial breaks. Some of you are newer, newer. Uh, Wilkinson and Boa have a book called Talk Through the Bible. It's unlike any book I've ever found. It gives you a chart, a couple of paragraphs, and an outline of every book of the Bible. It's so helpful. It's just a good textbook to have. And then if you've not yet found Tom Constable's notes, if you just like the sheriff, you you put the word constable and Bible study notes, you will find uh, Plano Bible Church, I think, or Chapel has houses them, as well as Sunlight Publications. They're free. The favorite word of Christians, free. Uh, they're free. And you can download the PDF onto your uh, computer or your laptop or your tablet or whatever you use. And they surpass a study Bible over 340 pages of notes on the Gospel of Mark alone. And so it gives you an overview. It gives you different commentaries. And so they, what Tom Constable has done is literally thousands of hours in each book of the Bible. And he picks these commentators and puts them together so that people like you and me who don't have that time uh, can glean from the resources. So it, it's an extraordinary resource. And uh, Constable, Dr. Constable has been a friend for many years. He's been on, on the podcast with me and a delightful man who is a disciplined guy who can read all day long. I can read for a few hours and then my brain starts to melt. But uh, So I, I glean from these resources and so I just give you that as a reminder and if you're new or newer uh, just to let you know those resources are great help. So let's look at these. Uh, number one, Mark is evidently not an eyewitness. Most of the gospel accounts, in fact one of the marks of a, an apostle was an eyewitness of the person, of the words and works of Jesus. He's not an eyewitness. Uh, Many scholars believe he's one and the same John Mark. I think that's an accurate conclusion. Um, And John Mark is two names, the name John Hebrew, Mark Latin. And so you might have a nickname for some of your kids. If, If you have a child that's a namesake, you might call him or her two names, and that's essentially what the attribution of John Mark is. 
Um, Mark is frequently accompanying Peter. And this perhaps is one of the ahas you may have when we look at the Gospel of Mark. Mark is writing about Peter's experience as an apostle. He wasn't an eyewitness. So Mark is telling the gospel record based on watching and learning from Peter. And that, that helps me as I think through some of the way Mark writes his record. It's a very accurate account of Peter's teaching. Mark's organization is not always chronological. Some of us who are high C, detailed, kind of orderly people and everything in its place and a place for everything, when you read through the synoptics and you're trying to put things together, it gets complicated when you introduce Mark, but he's not attempting to write a chronology. And that doesn't take away from the literature any more than we would tell a story. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of weary of these series on Netflix or whatever that they say, and then, and then they go back in time five years. Drives me nuts. My brain can't keep up with all that. And then it goes forward, and then it goes back three days, and I'm going, where in the world am I on a timeline? Well, you know, my, I like a linear thing, so chronology helps me. Mark might be considered Peter's interpreter. That's a pretty good way of thinking, because he's explaining to the audience that's reading this, remember my worn out phrase, in context, in context, another way of thinking that is when the first audience read this or heard these stories, what did they expect? What did they hear? This is one of the most important questions to ask when you read the Bible. It keeps you from a lot of misinterpretation because to understand what those people knew, heard, felt, believed when this information comes to them is very illuminating to how we apply and understand this. Um, Mark's account is reliable to the point that scholars call it a Markan priority. And what that means is this may well be the first gospel that was written. Um, when you, uh, again, our Bibles aren't necessarily ordered chronologically either, and some of that's a different, that's a different discussion for another time. But at the end of the day, um, when Luke writes, which we'll see in two weeks, in Luke's gospel, it seemed to me Theophilus to compile an account of all that was done. Uh, he's looking at sources. He's looking at something else. His gospel is going to be the longest of the four. He's a doctor. He's going to have more detail. He's going to have more information. Mark's very short. And so the gospel of Mark serves as, let's say, the benchmark, use that word carefully, of the gospels that are going to follow. And they're going to refer back to Mark as that early um, story. How many of you went to libraries and used library cards in your life? You know, uh, and you had different library cards. You had the card catalog that was for periodicals. You had for a reference books, which you couldn't take out of the, you, know, you can only use that in the library. You can't take it home, like lightning's going to strike or something. Uh, then you had, if you, you know what caged copies are? I mean, if you did your master's, you learned about caged copies, and that was like a whole different experience. You go down, and literally, there's cages, and you go, and there's a librarian there, and he or she typically isn't very nice. And you want a caged copy? Oh, like it's some big deal, like this is special, you know? And, uh, you know, so you use material. Now we just wiki our way into misinformation. But back when men that were men and women were women, academics, you had to go with a card catalog and do it the old-fashioned way. Now you turn them into some 
you know, Etsy project with a car catalog. But anyway, <laughs> Mark was the car catalog for Matthew, Luke, and John as a way of thinking about it. Uh, Mark is very well versed in the geography of Israel and especially Jerusalem. And I won't give you all the references, but I think we have a couple. No, I didn't put them up there. Uh, Mark 5, 1, 6, 53, 8, 10. You can find these on your own. The way he describes uh, an event with the geography is unique to the Gospels. So for those of you that like maps and so forth, you might like prefer that. He also was, uh, was very adept at Jewish custom and Aramaic. Uh, in the spread of the Gospel, uh, Mark accompanies Paul and Barnabas. He is related to Barnabas. He's his cousin. And if you remember further in your New Testament, when Saul of Tarsus comes on the scene and becomes Paul, were it not, humanly speaking, were it not for Barnabas, Paul would never have had an audience with the other apostles. Barnabas was the encourager. And in the, in the record of Acts, we see how Barnabas and his infectious life of encouragement launched Paul into getting attention, if you will. And you know this story, perhaps, if you're somewhat of a Bible reader. Uh, Paul and, and uh, John Mark have a falling out. We don't know exactly what it was. Uh, Paul says, he deserted me. Pretty hard word. About the same time that occurs, Barnabas leaves as well. And we hear nothing more about Barnabas. He kind of rides off into the sunset. But we do hear late in Paul's life, in 2 Timothy, which is his last book that he wrote before he dies, he says, uh, send John Mark to me. So it seems that there was some reconciliation or they worked through some issues or whatever. We don't know some of the backstory. When, when I read stories about conflicts with, with Paul and, and people, you know what that does? It encourages me that Christians still fight. We still have disagreements. And there's still hope for reconciliation. And that's what's great about the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let me read from our friends Wilkinson and Boa their paragraph. Mark, the shortest and simplest of the four Gospels, gives a crisp and fast-moving account of the life of Christ. With few comments, Mark lets the narrative speak for itself as it tells the story of a servant who is constantly on the move preaching, healing, teaching, and finally, dying for sinful men. A ministry that develops disciples and finally culminates on the cross. There, the servant who, quote, did not come to be served, close quote, makes the supreme sacrifice of servanthood by giving, quote, his life for ransom for many. That pattern of selfless service becomes the model for those who follow in the servant's steps. And let's read the, what we arguably could call the key verse. Let's read it together, Mark 10, 45. Let's read with me. For the Son of Man, let's read with me. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many laden with meaning, but that's a good uh, verse for you to circle, to put at the front page of your Bible. This is not maybe, I don't like the phrase the key verse, or, you know, but it's, it's certainly an important key to understanding the book. Let's talk about some features and characteristics that may not be unique to Mark, but they are peculiar to Mark. 
let me show you what I mean. There's an emphasis on Jesus' works, number one. You'll hear me, if you've listened to me over the years, talk about the words and works of Jesus Christ. I say that all the time. Because to understand the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ, you must needs look at his words, what he said, and his works, what he did. Uh, Howard Hendricks, who was a professor, I see Bill, my friend Bill Howard back there. Uh, you know, we, we, we revere the prof because he taught us so much. And he would encourage us, gentlemen, study the life of Christ. Study the life of Christ. J. Dwight Pentecost, study the life of Christ. I mean, you can't waste your time studying the life of Christ. And the Gospel of Mark does a little bit of a flip where he focuses more on the works of Jesus over against the words, what Jesus said. And that's an observation that you need to pay attention to when you're reading his gospel. Uh, he does mention that Jesus taught or that Jesus went here, but he doesn't give the discourses. For example, we have 18 miracles, four parables, and one discourse. We don't have the Olivet Discourse. We don't have the, the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have the Upper Room Discourse. We don't have the High Priestly Prayer. Uh, we have a very truncated account, but he's recording the works, what Jesus is a, was doing, acknowledging that he's teaching. Uh, Mark's style is vivid. It underscores the eyewitness. It's like a, reading a thriller in some respects. Uh, some of you perhaps read... Uh, you know, fiction books that are thrillers. Um, Cindy is a voracious reader. Uh, we have this standing joke in our family that Cindy, she says, I read uh, one book and then I read like a murder mystery. I read a, a bad book and then I read some books that are good for me. And she like, I mean, it's so fun because she'll read all these series of, you know, spy and, and books. She's a voracious reader. And I'll say, what do you think of that? And she goes, oh, it's, it's, you know, she can kind of figure it out, you know, so to speak. Like, you know, if you see a mystery with Cindy, she's going to know it within the first chapter, you know, because she, she's so accustomed to it. Well, I've read some of those books, and I don't like them. Because I feel like I, it's like I get anxious. Like I got to keep reading and turning pages. No disrespect to those of you who write fiction. I just, I just don't want, I'm boring. I like to read theology. I like to read weird things that nobody else we is, reads, and I'm just weird that way. But Mark is a thriller. Mark is an action-packed gospel. Now, a little bit of grammar. Um, there is a, a, a verbal tense called the historical present in New Testament Greek. I know this is exciting to you all. You're on the edge of your seats to learn grammar. You can't wait. Um, bear with me. There's a point behind this. We don't have a historical present in the English language. So if you know anything about languages, one of the challenges when you translate something is not just looking at vocabulary. There's a lot going on in rendering one language into the English ear, which is a very cumbersome disaster of a language, frankly, when you look at languages around the world. The historical present is, a, is an action-packed, on the edge of your seat, moving forward. It, so, for example, it would almost be like a play-by-play. -play. He's going over to the crowds. He's taking the loaf and the fish from a little boy. It's kind of that emphasis. So you may not pick it up if you're not paying attention, but one word that he uses 51 times is the word immediately. 
Immediately, immediately, immediately. So you got a short book, and 51 times this word pops off the page. Every time immediately occurs in the Gospel of Mark in my Bible, it's underlined twice with a blue pen, and then I take a pencil and I connect them on the pages. Because I need to see that reinforcement, or I go back and it's morning by morning new verses I read. But if I do it and take notes in it, then I can see what I observed the last time I studied it. Um, about 200, he uses 80, his vocabulary, sorry, his vocabulary is unique with 80 words. Luke's vocabulary, 250 unique terms. So here's a guy that's sort of a commoner, if you will. He's speaking to the average person in this thriller, action-packed story. Um, he's also, uh, even though he's brief, he's very candid. One of the phrases that some people might love or not like is in chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus is back at his home synagogue, and he's teaching, and everybody wants to see a miracle. This is the homeboy done good, and Jesus won't perform. Jesus is not an animal who's going to do a trick for a treat. He's not going to feed their bellies because they want him to. And we have this great line where, the, where Mark says, he has lost his senses. It's like saying, he's gone mad. No, this is Jesus Christ and Mark, the gospel writer, is going to record that he's lost his senses. Um, Cranfield writes, the evidence points to Mark's not being a creative literary artist, but an extremely conscientious compiler. Dr. David Lowry writes, Mark's writing was more of an oral record of a written ministry, not unlike D.L. Moody, whose command of the English language was lacking, yet his grammatical deficiencies never significantly hindered him in communicating the gospel with great effectiveness. So when, when a person speaks, um, you've seen the t-shirts, I'm silently judging you for your grammar. I learned there was an English teacher in the room today, and that doesn't threaten me anymore. Uh, you know, it doesn't. I, when we were in Northern Virginia, we had uh, speech writers that t attended the church, and they would come up and they'd say, you used the word epicenter. You didn't mean that word, you know, and it was fun. Um, but uh, I'm too old to be intimidated, but... Um, D.L., when he married Emma, Emma sort of polished him up. And she would, she would take his notes and correct his grammar. But the guy would fill P.T. Barnum and Bailey Auditoriums with thousands of people. Now, that may not be a one-on-one comparison. It's just an illustration of Mark is more of an action thriller account of the gospel. And his language isn't as erudite as, say, Luke or even John's gospel. Um, the other part about Mark that is a feature and characteristic, and Christy did mention this talking to the children, and it's so important. Uh, almost 40% of the book is the last eight days. Chapter 8, verse 31, is, is a line drawn in my Bible at 831, because that's a transition in the book. And now he's going to talk about eight days of Jesus' life, 16 chapters, Chapter 8, verse 41, we have this major break, 31, that's going to now speak about almost 40% of his life focused on the Passion Week, the triumphal entry, ultimately the crucifixion. Let's think about some themes. 
Uh, obviously, the Son of Man is a predominant theme. It's Jesus' favorite self-reference. Do you have a favorite self-reference, the way you like to be referred to? I like the name Michael. Not Mike. That's a, that's a microphone. I like the name Michael. No disrespect to the mics in the room. I like the name Michael. Uh, maybe you had a name growing up. Maybe your name was you know, John Paul, and they called you JP. That's cool. You have a preferred name, probably. Um, Cindy, by the way, is not Cynthia. In fact, you might draw back a nub if you call her Cynthia. Her name is Cindy, just Cindy, and she's pretty picky about it. Uh, that's her name. Jesus liked the name Son of Man. And it's interesting how he uses it as a self-reference 14 times in the Gospel of Mark. Son of God three times and Son of David three times. We mentioned this last Sunday. The attribution of Son of David is so interesting. Because the person in the first century, when they talked about Jesus as the Son of David, they were saying, this guy is Messiah. When that phrase was heard by a first century Jew, they went back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, that on the throne of David, a Messiah would be forever, all eternity. The messianic promise. And he's, he's the son of David. He's related to the Davidic line. Um, interestingly, in Mark's gospel, the phrase son of God and son of David is heard out of the mouth of demons, lepers, a woman with a hemorrhage, a blind man, and the parent of a demon-possessed boy. They call him son of David. So that tells us what that first audience was thinking about. This wasn't just some miracle worker, some Catherine Kuhlman come to town, that maybe you could, she'd touch you and heal you. This was a guy they heard rumor about, and their historical theology, you know, we talk about the loss of American history. I do often. Uh, Jews knew their history, and they knew their theocracy back to King David. Not King Saul, King David. And they knew the promise, covenant promise made to David's household would continue, and Messiah would come. The demons even understood this. Um, while not as prominent in Matthew, he does talk about the kingdom 20 times. And Mark's emphasis on the kingdom is nuanced and it's interesting because it's the presentation of the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom, and a description of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like. How do you explain the kingdom of God to humans? Well, Mark is going to record Jesus' teachings and phrases to explain the kingdom of God is like this. It's like that. It's like this to put it in common language. Um, and of course, entering the kingdom was done how? Childlike faith. The king's English was, suffer the children not. Let the kids come to me. Because they believe something about me. You know, children are a marvelous example of believing their parents. If you tell your child, if you do this, 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 I'll take you to McDonald's. No, it's not McDonald's, it's Chick-fil-A. I'll take you to Chick-fil-A. Well, they do what you've asked them to do. You better believe it because they want to go get their Chick-fil-A fix. There's got to be something addictive in Chick-fil-A. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But anyway, so you're going to tell them that. And they're going to believe you. And if you forget, will they remind you? You said, we're going to go to Chick-fil-A. And you go, yeah, I did. So let's go to Chick-fil-A. Um, a child essentially believes a parent. 
A child has faith in what the parent says. That's all, that's all the point is. These children come to me. That's how you come to me. Do you believe me? Do you believe me? Childlike faith. This is what faith is like. It's like a child. So these are ways Mark records the works of Jesus. Mark also records Peter's great confession. And if you've been to Israel, you've gone to Caesarea Philippi. If you've yet to go, we will take you to Caesarea Philippi. It is God's will for you to set foot at Caesarea Philippi. And you will stand at Caesarea Philippi and you will see the water coming out of this cave. And you will see ground zero where Jesus took the disciples and where he says, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says what? You are the Christ, Son of God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And this great confession for the Apostle Peter is recorded in, obviously other ones as well, but, but Mark's capture of this underscores again, he's telling the gospel account from Peter's experience. Not always the content and the teaching, but the works of Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful declaration. Read with me Mark 8, 31. Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man... Let's start over, please. Let's start over, please. I love you, but let's start over. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. This again is that halfway point. Now, when they heard this information, and I'll talk about this more in a moment, I don't think they could embrace it and really understand what was going on. But this is Mark's record of what Jesus is doing in his gospel. Um, the purpose of the gospel, again, we don't have a John 20, verse 31 purpose, the reason this thing has been written so that you might believe. Uh, we don't have that here, but we can piece together some overarching themes, overarching principles, what was Mark after, how the Holy Spirit moved Mark, and let me suggest a few of these. Again, the focus on the last eight days should not be overlooked. This, if you have a Nelson Study Bible, I love the little note. Mark's gospel has been called a passion story with a long introduction. That's a pretty good assessment. It's a long introduction to talk about those last eight days. Um, Mark's purpose, uh, John Grasmick writes a little different take, and I love what he says here. Mark's purpose was basically pastoral. The Christians in Rome had already heard and believed the good news of God, God's saving power. But they needed to hear it again with a new emphasis to catch afresh its implications for their lives in a dissolute and often hostile environment. The word dissolute means indifferent to moral restraints. I don't care about what morality says or does. They needed to understand the nature of discipleship, what it meant to follow Jesus in light of who Jesus is and what he had done and would keep doing for them. Now that paragraph is what I call a $25 paragraph. What John Grasmick writes in that paragraph, if you take a moment to let, walk through this with me, it's pastoral. They're in Rome. 
they have heard the gospel, but they're, let's just say they're caught up in living. And Mark's writing them saying, uh, you have become dissolute. You're living in a hostile environment. Let's recalibrate you and get back to discipleship. Now, I read this, and I went down a rabbit hole for an hour. And I wrote about four pages that I'm not going to share with you. But I'm struck this is a one-to-one application. This could be said today about us. This applies to me. This applies to Michael. And it may well apply to you. Our beloved country, and I say beloved, and you may not love our country. That's okay. I'll forgive you. And you can be mad at me. I don't care. I love our country. I love that we can stand here with an open Bible and not be afraid. I love that you can believe what you want to believe. And if you want to believe something else, you have the freedom and protection to do that. And I love that about our country. Does that mean our country is perfect? Of course not. No country is perfect. But this experiment is pretty stellar. Now, when, when John Grasmick writes about Mark's purposes to Christians in Rome, I'm going, well, that's kind of American Christians. And you not, may not hold to a Judeo-Christian philosophy. I do. I, I, at one time in my life, I believed uh, most of America's founding fathers were deists. And as I studied and read and learned from people that are far more uh, uh, scholarly than me about American history, I think a lot of them are what we would call fundamental Bible-believing Christians. Do not forget, they weren't leaving England because they wanted a lake house in America. They weren't leaving England because they wanted a vista in Colorado. They didn't even know what awaited them. They were leaving England because there was essentially a church, state church. And if you don't follow our state church, you're a heretic. And so they left for freedom of religion. Were there opportunists? Sure. Were there people that may have had bad motives? Of course, because human nature's never changed. But the primary motivation of leaving England was to escape an oppressive government that would not let Christians believe what they believed. And they came to this land. Um, discipleship can be lost in the opportunities of a culture. The mission of Christ can be lost as we are materially and socially and however else you want to measure it, blessed. We can find ourselves, oh, we're sort of also rans when it comes to the gospel. Discipleship is not subject to political or social pressures. The timeless nature of the gospel makes it exempt from excuse. The present critical importance of discipleship never falls out of theological fashion. Put in simpler language, don't let the world teach you theology. We are in a tsunami of lies and misinformation and, and all sorts of, you know, I don't want to become political in the sense that this is about teaching the scripture, but this observation of Christians in Rome and Christians in America and the Gospel of Mark put me on my heels. Man is self-absorbed. We're inoculated by our personal visions, our personal passions, our accomplishments, our achievements, our success, our wealth. Our, we want to raise Christian families. It's all fine and good. It's all fine and good. 
But if that takes precedence over becoming a disciple and a follower of Jesus, it's wrong. It's wrong. And that's what Dr. Grasmick is observing about the Gospel of Mark. You can be distracted by politics. Cindy and I used to be so, we used to be political junkies. We would, I would record three hours of news every day on my DVR. I would come home after, after work. I would have, my, you know, have dinner with the family, and I would sit in my chair with my remote controls and my glass of water and my world, and I would fast forward through those three hours of news, because you can fast forward through commercials and the intros and the outros, and I would get to the things I like to watch, and man, my blood pressure, it was low before I started, and it was near hospitalization before it was ended. And I go, Cindy, I did this for years, for years, because we lived there. When you live there, you're a frog in a kettle. So we moved to Chicago. That's a little different politics. <laughs> a little different politics. So we learned a little about Chicago. We moved to Nashville. Politics? I play music. <laughs> different cultures. We're still frogs in the kettle of the culture. So, social justice, police, race, gender, think of all these things that have taken over the nomenclature of social media. Social media is a spigot, it's a fire hose of bits of information that, let me just say this as kindly as I can tell you, is unreliable. People don't read. People don't know who said that tweet or that Instagram post. I mean, it used to be Instagram was kind of a safe place to put pictures of your, you know, of your life and your grandchildren. By the way, I can show you a picture of my grandson, if you want me to, in a laundry basket smiling. Uh, that's what it used to be for. Now it's becoming political too. I'm not, don't hear me ranting and railing. I am a little bit. Uh, is that more important than the gospel? It's hard not to get sucked in. Money, sex, and power, the three umbrellas, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Money, sex, and power are luring to every generation, every person, because we're all sinful men and women. We all have clay feet. And the constant cadence is come back, come back, come back to the gospel. Um, the 24-7 noise of social media never turns off and this sits idly on too many shelves. I'm not, a, I'm not a Bible beater in the sense, but I am. Because it's become not even second place. Church in America has lost her way. Frog in the kettle is, a, is, I was thinking about this illustration, I said all the time, I was thinking, you know, some people don't even know what that means anymore. And it's a silly old illustration of you put a bunch of frogs in a kettle of water and they're happy to swim around and it can be. You put a slow heat under that and bring it to a boil, they'll never, it'll never occur to them to get out of the kettle. They'll die. And that's what the phrase frogs in the kettle means. The Christians in America are frogs in the kettle. I'm not mad about it. I'm very concerned for your kids and your grandkids and my grandkids. 
Did every grandparent say that? Probably. But I can say it now because I'm a grandpa. I'm concerned about my kids and my grandkids. And watching social media, I'm concerned about a lot of your kids and what Kool-Aid they have drunk. Social media is a reality. We're not going to get rid of it. But if we don't recalibrate our own priorities, back to Grasmick's quote for just a second, they needed to understand the true nature of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus in light of who Jesus is and what he had done and would keep doing. That's all you need. Go home. Dismissed. That's all you need. And I love how Dr. Grasmick put it. Some other specific observations. Um, the word immediately, I've mentioned it already, occurs many times in, God, in, in Mark's gospel. It, after the baptism of Christ, immediately, the temptation, immediately, calling the disciples, leaving their families, immediately, from Capernaum to the synagogue, immediately, news spreading, immediately, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, immediately, the man with leprosy, immediately here, the blind man, immediately healed, on and on it goes. So this activity uh, is a very important thing. I talked about the Holy Spirit in the series we did on Benchmark some time ago, and I had some questions that I just couldn't entertain in a series of messages, maybe for some other time, about the gifts in particular. And one of the features of the gifts was an immediate instantaneous healing. So when people had the gift in the New Testament, James and Peter, for example, when Jesus healed a person, it was immediate. It wasn't progressive. It wasn't contingent upon faith. And we'll see a very interesting story in Mark in just a moment about this immediately and how when Christ did something, boom, it occurred. Authority is another key theme, a specific theme in the Gospel of Mark. Look at chapter 2, verses 10 to 12 as I read. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive uh, on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately, there's the word, immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so they were all amazed and were glorifying God, said, we've never seen anything like this. Again, this is what got the scribes and Pharisees and religious authorities very anxious. This guy is doing things that no one's done before. Uh, Isaiah talked about that was reserved for Messiah, so if he's not Messiah, we better vilify him. Does that sound like a familiar theme? called ad hominem in logic and debate. You don't like the person's uh, positions, you attack the person, not the argument. We don't like what Jesus is doing, we attack the person, not whether or not he did this or not. Identification authority, thirdly, the call to sinners. And I love this, and again, I know I've read this before, and I know I should have seen it. I missed it until reviewing the Gospel of Mark this week. The call to sinners in chapter 2, verse 17. Hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I know that verse, you know that verse, but it just, I just, it, I missed it. He didn't just come to show up, he's calling sinners. Whom is he calling? People who realize they got a problem. 
People who know they have a sin condition. And righteous here is done tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic. I didn't come to call it righteous. If you think you're righteous, you're not hearing my message. He came to call sinners. And another one is this back and forth of hearing and listening. Not unique to the Gospels, but Mark's record of it is very interesting. There's an emphasis on hearing and listening. Mark 4, 23, and the first part of verse 24. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. Mark did not record the content. He just records the observation what Jesus is doing. Listen up. Did your grandmother and mother ever say, listen to me, boy? Did you ever hear, I'm going to learn you? You're from the South, if you know what that expression means. It means pain will soon follow if you don't obey. I'm going to learn you, boy. It's kind of one word when they say, I'm going to learn you, boy. Uh, listen to me. And this one got me in another rabbit hole. Michael, what are you listening to? What are you hearing? And can I be a little impertinent? What are you listening to? What are you hearing? We don't use the radio much anymore unless you're an older person. We choose our podcasts, our programming, to tailor it to what we want. I remember when this was first introduced back when I was in a world of radio broadcasting going, this is such a game changer. And most of people over 55, it's a hard learning curve for us. Um, but I don't have to go to, I was an NPR junkie for 10 years. I, I shaved every morning to Bob Edwards. That's how old I am. I loved Bob Edwards' voice. I loved NPR. I didn't ever care for mainstream media, but I always loved NPR. And then when we went to D.C., I had to use different sources because I was in an environment where everybody was, it wasn't like one political group. You're in the cauldron. So you have to kind of understand the arguments. Chicago, there's only the Chicago way. It's what it is. Uh, here, again, it's a different cultural climate. And so I'm going scratching my head going, well, how do people take in information? So now what we've done is we can tailor it down. I listen to this podcast. Did you hear so-and-so? And, and, and there's sort of this organic, I hate the word, this organic viral spread that people, they like a person and they share it. And then other people start listening and the tribe grows and people subscribe to YouTube channels. You and I have the beautiful benefit of tailoring what information we ingest that cuts two ways. Um, we have a phrase we use about we're preaching to the already convinced we used to say preaching to the choir. There's no choir anymore. So we're preaching to the already convinced. That's called red meat. Of course they like hearing those things. Of course you like hearing someone who agrees with you. We all do. If they agree with me, I'm smart. I knew that before he or she said it. This one caught me when Jesus says, you got ears to hear? Listen, information has never been more uh, in abundance, and it affects your thinking. It affects your heart. What you listen to affects who you are. Immediacy, authority, calling of sinners, listening, and lastly here, a unique observation that Jesus wondered at people's unbelief or we might say disbelief mark 6 6 he wondered at their unbelief as he was going around the villages 
teaching. This is a great setup in this section, and this is one of the painful parts of the Gospel of Mark. He's gone to his own home. He's teaching in the synagogue. This is where that cryptic phrase we use, a prophet is not welcome in his own home. This is where Jesus says those words, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own household. They, he wouldn't perform a miracle for them. So you can see this very pregnant pause after Jesus has taught in the synagogue and they're all going, okay, homeboy, do something for us. Some of you musicians and songwriters, I can only imagine when you go home, they knew you when. You're still a punk. You're still whatever in the birth order. You're that girl that liked music. One of my friends told the story about his dad introducing his family and his sons, and this one does this one. goes, that one, he likes music. The guy done very well in the industry. That one, he likes music. See, so when you go home, they know you, right? They know all about you. They're not that impressed with you. That cuts two ways. But the story stops there, and it doesn't continue to verse 6, or we don't pay attention to it. He wondered at their unbelief. The word wondered is a funny word in New Testament usage, and a better synonym might be disturbed. It wasn't like, I'm really curious why they don't believe in me. It's like, this is disturbing. Because I grew up here, and this is my home. This is disturbing that they don't believe who I am. Which segues me into why is it hard for some people to believe? Oh, unbelieving generation, how long must I be with you? It's one of the great stories. It's perhaps the standout story for me in my personal devotions is the man in Mark 9. Let's read it. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? This is the boy. Transfiguration has occurred. Um, they've come down from the mountain. The disciples have been unable to heal this father's demon-possessed son. Some think he had epilepsy. Uh, I lean toward the demon possession. Um, and so Jesus sees the crowd and he intervenes. How long has this been happening to him? The father, he said, from childhood. It is often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, Mark's word, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I love that sentence. I love that sentence. I want to believe you, but I'm having a hard time. I want to believe you can do this, but I just don't know. I want to believe you can help my son, but help me believe that. Augustine argued that God gives us the faith to believe. I can't prove that chapter and verse, but I like the idea. In a world where many will identify with some assignment um, what are you believing in yourself I like this man because I think he's doing his best to be a dad to help his kid any of us who've had sick children or disabled children or children with medical problems or uh, learning disabilities and 
probably not any in the room that are immune to that. Uh, it gets wearying trying to help your son or daughter. I can remember with one of our children how hard we both worked, but Cindy was up early and late trying to help this one child. Because you'll do anything to help your son or daughter get it, to get on track, whatever that looks like. And here's a guy that has drawn the last straw. I've heard rumor of this man named Jesus of Nazareth who performs miracles. Well, he's not available, but his disciples are here and they can't do anything. And then we have this wonderful record. If you can do anything. If you can. Do you understand who you're asking this question to? Of course he didn't. But you got to love his response. I do believe. Help me in my belief. And here's what I want to encourage you from that passage. If you don't know who Christ is, I'm not mad at you. I don't think you're an idiot. I don't think less of you. But this guy is the guy you need to get to know. Here's a guy that had a problem he couldn't fix with his resources. And he reached out to one. He heard rumor who could fix his situation. And whether he, quote, fixed it or not was not important. It's he went after someone who had a solution to a greater problem. And Jesus is kind to him, if you can. And he heals his son. Methinks that man had a change of heart that day. Methinks that father went home with a smile on his face that he could not wipe off. And if he had a wife waiting for home, can you imagine her joy when they walked in and that boy was no longer harassed? Finally, references to the suffering servant. We've got a cadence in Mark's story of the suffering servant. Um, and it's, it's part of the story that we don't understand, that he had to suffer to go to glory. Um, and I need to run to the end here and ask a simple question. Um, this is not perhaps the most refined theological question you're ever going to hear. And I'm a little bit in pencil in my own thinking but as I finish this study on the Gospel of Mark, I come down to there's three responses to the person of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. They either come as critics, as curious, or they're compelled. We come to God as critics. Why don't you solve sex trafficking? Why do you allow AIDS? Why do you allow COVID? Why do you let the innocent die? Why do you fill in the blank? We're critical. You're not God in my image is what we're really saying. If you were God, you would resolve these things. Secondly, we come curious. The man in Mark 9 might be a curious man. I don't know. Certainly the, Nazarene, uh, the, the uh, Nazareth synagogue family members were curious. Let's see what you can do. But then there are those who are compelled. And they come to Jesus because they got nowhere else to go. They come to Jesus because they realize in their own current system and strategy, it ain't going to work. They come to Jesus because they realize the world is probably not going to help them, and a lot of misinformation and deception is out there. Each person has a preset agenda, whether they're a religious leader, a husband or a wife, a woman with a hemorrhage, whatever their story might be. But for you... Um, Put yourself in, I, I, I'm not saying this is, I guess it's in pencil in my thinking. Why do you come to Jesus? I hope you come because you're compelled. I got nowhere to go. 
I don't like the theology, but the suffering servant seems to conclude if you and I suffer. And I may amend that to say when you and I suffer, when the props are taken away, the theological corollary to this is God getting your and my attention. I got no place to go. If you can, would you do something for me? And that's the sinner's condition where he or she says, I got no place else to go. I'm compelled. Will you help me? Will you do something for me? And you know what his answer might be? Absolutely. I may not fix your presenting problem, but I'll fix the real problem. That you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and you can't do this on your own.